In the United States, every other person over the age of 20 either has prediabetes or diabetes. Today, we learn about the story behind this alarming statistic with diabetes expert, Dr. Tanaz Moyne. Dr. Moyne graduated from the University of California, Irvine with a dual MD and MBA degree. She completed an internal medicine training and chief residency year at Yale University, followed by specialty training in endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at UCLA. She has quickly excelled in her field. Currently, she's an assistant professor at UCLA and core investigator at the Center for the Study of Healthcare Innovation, Implementation, and Policy at the Veterans Association Greater Los Angeles, where her research focuses on comparing the effectiveness of different interventions for patients with diabetes and prediabetes. What exactly is diabetes? And what are the risk factors for it? What can you do if you're at risk or have diabetes? Join us today as Dr. Moyne unpacks these questions and shares what a successful diabetes prevention intervention looks like. Dr. Tanaz Moyne, it's so wonderful meeting you here and talking about this incredibly important subject, diabetes prevention program. And your record speaks for itself in terms of what you've accomplished over your lifetime, your short lifetime. Uh, I expect a lot (laughs) more in the future. And Um, also having someone as talented as you in so many ways, not just as a researcher and an accomplished physician, but also ability to really cross into other different departments and working with various different people with different skills levels and educating them and working with them, communicating, I think really speaks for the well-roundedness that you are, but also how you're able to work in this field of diabetes, which really is requiring a large, multi-talented, multi-disciplinary group to accomplish your goal, which is what is your goal, actually? Huh. What is it? Well, thank, what would you say? Thank you. I'll start by just saying thank you so much for having me here today. And it's been an absolute pleasure working with you as well and other folks across the campus who are thinking about prevention and healthier lives and for our students, for our faculty, for our patients. So it's really an honor to be here. And, you know, in terms of my personal goals, I think You know, I realized early on in my training here as an endocrine fellow, so I was studying diabetes in particular, that we have the opportunity to be proactive about a lot of things with respect to our health and well-being. But I think the way medicine is delivered in the U.S. is often reactive. So we'll be talking about prediabetes, and I think that's a great example of us really trying to get ahead and empower our patients to lead healthier lives. Right, working upstream. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of waiting, again, for bad things to happen and then stepping in. And as an endocrinologist, you know, I sometimes get some slack, or I used to. Why Why are you, you know, you're preventing the one thing you're supposed to be treating oh. as a di- <laughs> diabetes. Well, I hope you can. I know, I was like, yeah. wait, but, you know, but you I want think, to put yourself yeah, out of business there's a if lot you of, can. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of really kind of bad things that we can't prevent. But, you know, we're learning more and more about the importance of prevention. And that even though I'm a subspecialist who focuses on diabetes, That is my passion, and I think part of that stems from seeing the negative impacts diabetes can have on my patients' lives and their families' lives, so really just using that as a motivation. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing really is is secondary prevention, right? Because Mm -hmm. primary prevention would be preventing even the prediabetes. Yeah. Secondary prevention is taking someone with something that's the harbinger. Right, and and when we talk about prediabetes, so yes, we are trying to prevent diabetes, but you know we're still at a point where we are, in technical terms, trying to prevent those bad things that can happen with diabetes, yeah. like heart problems, heart disease, uh, strokes, MIs. And so in that respect, we're still doing primary prevention right. of those kinds of negative side effects. So yeah, so this is something I feel passionate about, and I feel very lucky to be in a sort of a university setting where folks are forward thinking about these topics, including, you know, yourself. And we're bringing together individuals from, as you said, different sectors. sectors. Yeah, And um, all of us have, you know, something to contribute. And together, I think we can get a lot farther and be much more impactful than any of us sort of working alone. 
for our listeners, can you give a bit of a background on what diabetes is? Sure, I'd love to do that. Uh, So diabetes is, we can think about it broadly as a condition where blood sugars or glucose levels are higher than they should be in the body. And part of the reason that and happens. And what's normal? What is so a, So a normal blood sugar, if you were to fast overnight and we were to do a blood sugar test in the morning, normal is 100 or less. And so diabetes is when the, you know, in the morning, if we were to do that blood test, it's a greater than 126 or greater. And the reason that diabetes happens is that there's dysregulation of a very important hormone called insulin, which controls blood sugar levels in the body. Insulin's released by the pancreas and it's essential for life. We can't live without insulin. And so there's two types of diabetes, type one, where um, folks are usually diagnosed at a much younger age and the pancreas stops producing insulin altogether. Younger meaning less than 20. Yes. Yeah, and you know they can be toddlers and into the teen years. We do have cases of adults who are also diagnosed with type one diabetes. But what happens on a sort of a pathophysiologic level is the pancreas, the islet cells, stop producing insulin. The type so, one. The type one. So folks who are diagnosed with type one diabetes require insulin replacement therapy right after diagnosis. And the second and much more common type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, which means that the body is actually still making insulin. It just doesn't know how to use it correctly. And that type of diabetes is usually diagnosed older in adulthood. And individuals with type 2 diabetes are almost always started on oral medications. And with time, many of them also may need insulin therapy. So those are an overview of the two different types of diabetes. And what does it mean to have prediabetes? So uh, what it means to have prediabetes is that the sugars are above normal, but not yet meeting the diagnostic threshold to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So, so you again, said uh, between the fasting... So fasting between 100 and 125 is considered prediabetes. So less than 100 is normal, 100 to 125 is prediabetes, and 126 or more is considered diabetes. And there's also another blood test, hemoglobin A1c. So uh, 5.7 to 6.4% is considered prediabetes, and 6.5% and above is considered diabetes. And so what it means to have prediabetes is that you're on this, this spectrum of the sugars are a little above normal, but you don't yet meet the criteria to be, you know, considered to have full-blown diabetes. That sounds very clear. (laughs) Thank you. The thing that I think has blown my mind away is this sort of statistic of one out of two over 20-year-olds in the United States are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And I know people say one out of three are pre-diabetic, but to me, this other data point is even more profound. 50% of our population, one out of two, right? And tell me more about, I mean, like, how have we gotten here? Like, I don't, it just blows my mind. As a pediatrician, it blows my mind. Well, as an adult endocrinologist, it also blows my mind. The statistics are really alarming. And what date is this? Like, when did that date? This data? Uh So there was a study published in the New England Journal. um, which Of medicine. Of medicine. very fancy, important One of the highest tier kind of journals that we have, and it comes from data and investigators from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who have a really strong interest in diabetes prevention these days. And yeah, it's absolutely shocking. And I think there are a lot of risk factors for diabetes and prediabetes, obesity being one of the biggest. And we know those rates are continuing to increase as well. Which is also crazy. Right. And that's where your research, right. So it's, you know, and it's not that every person with prediabetes or diabetes is obese. We have different phenotypes or body types, but definitely higher risk. Also, lack of physical activity we know is a risk factor for both prediabetes and diabetes. And our lives have become more and more sedentary. You know, we sit behind our computers or um, when we get home from a long day of work, we're not doing as much physical activity as we should be doing. Yeah, and, um, that, and why is that? Why is why is physical activity so protective? 
So um, there's a lot we still, you know, we understand and there's some things we don't fully understand. So obviously weight maintenance or prevention of weight gain is one very important thing about physical activity. So we know as individuals age, they gain weight, but folks who are more physically active are less likely to gain weight. They also tend to have more muscle mass, which um, when we think about the balance between insulin and glucose or sugar levels in the body is a protective thing. And there's all these other factors like stress, which we know, you know, sort of there are stress hormones, stress levels can increase blood sugar levels in the body and physical activity is protective in that way as well. You know, there are, again, numerous other risk factors. There are things, these are the ones we've talked about so far, what we call modifiable. So these are things that every single person has the power to change. I can eat healthier. I can be more physically active. There are some things, though, that are non-modifiable. So that might be our family history. So a parent, a brother, a sister with diabetes will increase your risk. And certain racial and ethnic groups, if you're African-American, of Hispanic background, Asians, all have increased risk. And those are things, unfortunately, none of us can change about ourselves. So it's very important to focus on the things we can. And I think healthier lifestyle is really the key here. I want to go back to two things that you said just earlier that I find I'd like to debunk a myth Sure. in the sense that, yeah, I think as you age, you can gain weight, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Is that it's like everyone says, oh, you know, going through menopause, you're, you're going to gain weight. Yeah. So it's not that you have to gain weight, but when we look at population level data and a And this is not just one study. I mean, numerous studies have shown this that, and part of this is our metabolic rate actually does decrease as we get older. So that plays into it. And so even if you're physically active and kind of eating the same things with age, you're at increased risk. So I think the better way to phrase it is with age or propensity to gain weight goes up. If you don't modify your diet. Yeah. And obviously stay physically active. Absolutely. So all of those, um, again, the the things we can modify, the things we have power to potentially sort of be proactive about as opposed to wait till something happens and then react after the fact. Yeah, because I feel that one thing that I feel is a myth is this, the fact that, you know, women who go through menopause are going to gain weight, whereas what you could really be considering is not not denying yourself food, but just listening and being more mindful of your hunger cues. Yeah. I just read a study about children and hunger cues. So, you know, parents eat more, finish your plate and how, you know, sort of, and culturally that can be a, you know, a a belief or a personal family sort of tradition that, you know, people clean their plates and that we should as parents stop doing that because you kind of suppress those cues and we should be listening because oftentimes we're eating much beyond that hunger cue. And that, again, puts us at risk for all kinds of health, you know, yeah. problems. Well, actually, there's research that's shown out of Penn State. Leanne Birch did a lot of research on parents who are controlling over their child's intake yeah. actually backfires ultimately, mm-hmm. and especially with girls, yeah. uh, Caucasian girls. The data shows that they will actually be much more likely to be overweight later in their 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old period of age. So... Yeah. And I think there's even some data about, you know, sort of, especially women compared to men, but the more controlling parents might be around food and intake, the propensity to have eating disorders and young adulthood. And we see that in our patients with diabetes too, who are transitioning to adulthood and might have had lots of do this, don't do that, eat this, don't eat that. And that can definitely backfire Mm -hmm. as they get older. So when we're talking about diabetes, when we say one out of two, right are the pre-diabetic or diabetic, we're talking about type 2 diabetes. Yes. So the statistics when the CDC, Centers for Disease Control um, Prevention, pulls the statistics, they're pulling from different data sources and they try as much as possible to make sure that it's, you know, type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. But as you know, there's another type of diabetes, type 1, and juvenile onset, onset, insulin dependent, because from the get-go, the body has stopped producing insulin. Your pancreas. Yes, the pancreas, exactly the organ uh, that's responsible for insulin production. But what happens, you know, and my work is in large data sets, when you're trying to tease out type 1 from type 2 diabetes, sometimes it's not a perfect science. But yes, 
when we talk about those statistics, we're talking about prediabetes. And most patients with diabetes actually do have type 2 diabetes. That's a much, much more common form. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other thing that you were mentioning, which is non-modifiable, are your genes. Yeah. And that's when you referenced certain ethnic or right. racial groups have a higher tendency, right? It's really related to the genetic mm-hmm. makeup. Now, there's also this belief, of course, which you, you've talked about modifiable behaviors. So you can have genes, but they don't have to be your destiny. Absolutely. Absolutely, I think. I, I'm a wholehearted believer, but it does mean that if you have those certain risk factors, you should be talking to your doctor a lot sooner. Uh, Typically, we start screening for type 2 diabetes at age 40 or 45. So if you haven't gotten any, and and how do you screen them? So there's very simple blood tests. The one that's most commonly used these days is called a hemoglobin A1C test. And what does that mean? Yeah. So what does that mean? So this test measures the amount of glucose on red blood cells. It's sort of a, a very plain definition of what the test is actually doing. It reflects the level of glucose that's circulating in the body over three months' time. And we have a cutoff on average, exactly. And so for prediabetes, it's an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4%. 6.5% and above is considered diabetes. So it's a very simple test. You don't need to fast or do anything different with respect to your diet, but your doctor could simply order the test for you. And so you could know. And if you do have some of these other risk factors, it's better to get screened earlier. Yeah. Earlier meaning? At a younger age. I would Even sooner? Yeah, absolutely. I would consider. So if you're, if you're overweight, if you're not that physically active, you may want to get tested sooner as well. Even if you don't have a relative. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, you know, depending on the patient and their risk factors, we would even screen teenagers and we're doing more and more of that because Mm -hmm. they're more individuals who are overweight and at risk. So those are the the national guidelines that sort of are phrased that way. Well, and even, well, correct me if I'm overstating, but from what I understand is if, if you do run a higher blood sugar level when you're a teenager, you're much more likely to accelerate your expression of type 2 diabetes because of growth hormones and uh, the other hormones that are circulating? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm by no means, you know, sort of a research expert in that area, but definitely I think we're seeing the onset of what we would call dysglycemia or glucose, sort of abnormal glucose regulation and slight elevations in the glucose levels at earlier ages. So decades ago, it was very rare, I would say, for someone who's a teenager to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Now it's a lot more, you know, sort of we're seeing more cases of it. So so there are definitely things that happen usually 10 years before, 6 to 10 years before you're diagnosed with diabetes is when we start to see lab changes, physiologic changes. So this is a very long kind of indolent process that's almost completely asymptomatic. So you wouldn't otherwise know unless you had, you know, you had the conversation with your physician and and thought about getting yourself screened for diabetes. So with prediabetes, you're describing that there are effects on your body even then that are negative. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I like to think about normal blood sugar, prediabetes, and diabetes as a continuum. So we have a sort of a, a slow progression throughout all of these different stages. It's not like everybody knows actually about the bad side effects of diabetes, heart disease. You know, it's the number one cause of kidney failure, blindness, preventable amputations in the U.S. and in the world. That's sort of general knowledge. Most people are aware that diabetes is not a good thing, but it's not like there's an on and off switch. So you all of a sudden have this risk when your blood sugar reaches a certain threshold. In the prediabetes range, you're still at risk, at increased risk for those things. And And why is that? So we have yet to really fully understand the pathophysiology, I would say, of why increased blood sugars directly, you know, are related to cardiovascular events. But there's some thought about glucotoxicity, so that the glucose itself is actually toxic. The sugar. Yeah, the sugar. And so in prediabetes, of course, your sugars aren't as high as diabetes. That's sort of by definition what it is, but it's still above normal. And so all of those things that we worry about, retinopathy, when vision is impaired by diabetes, also happens in prediabetes. The rate of it is lower, but it's still a risk. 
So absolutely something to take seriously. So one out of two over 20-year-olds are either pre-diabetic or diabetic in the United States. And I'm assuming that it's less in the 20-year-old range and it sort of rises as people Yes, because as you get above sort of in the fifth or sixth decade, so 50 to 60, absolutely the prevalence even goes higher and higher because age in and of itself is actually a risk factor for diabetes. So as I was mentioning, most national sort of care guidelines would say even in someone with absolutely no risk factors for diabetes, by age 45, they should have been screened for it because age itself is a risk factor. And another statistic that's quite dramatic to me is the one out of 10 do know. Yeah, only nine, of, yeah, nine, nine out, out, out of 10, 10 don't, don't know, know. I know. See, that look. they're pre-diabetic or diabetic. Yeah, so it's it's really, and this is where my work has focused, you know, sort of in the last five to seven years. I I think it's shocking every time I hear that. I'm I'm not less shocked. I mean, it's it's really alarming, especially because prediabetes is a time. I've always thought of it as, you know, the silver lining is even if you're at risk, you know that there are things, and we'll talk about those hopefully, but there are things you can do to prevent type 2 diabetes or at the very least delay the onset. You know? Right, and there's hope. This is yeah, something this you is can a do. Yeah, this is a glass half full is what I always uh-huh. tell my patients. Um, but if you don't know that you have this condition, right. how would you know to, to sort of do anything differently or to be proactive? And again, these statistics come from the CDC data. And they're kind of now a decade old. So we're hoping that with some of the national campaigns that are ongoing from the CDC, the American Medical Association, and I know when I give talks sort of anecdotally, I always ask people to raise their hand, you know, the providers, and there's sort of more, I think, attention to the issue. But yeah, I would say most patients and our studies, recent studies show that it's maybe closer to 20 or 30% no. So we're making headway, but that's still, that means, you know, three fourths of people have no idea. Well, yeah, you're definitely making headway. I have a friend who in her union, she got a newsletter this week that said one out of three Americans have prediabetes. Yeah. So she couldn't believe it. She like texted me. She was, oh, look at this, Wendy. And That's what you told me. And there it is. So, I mean, that would be terrific, right? If our organizations that normally are dealing with other health and welfare issues could also telegraph this message. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the old saying is knowledge is power. And so I think everybody has the right to know about their, you know, their health conditions, their risk. And some people may choose not to do anything about their, you know, that's not their priority right now. But I think giving folks the information to make those kinds of informed choices about their health is really important. And, you know, I have yet to meet a patient in all of my years of training and faculty that doesn't care if they get diabetes. They don't want to. Yeah. The, and who would, you know, who, who wants wouldn't, it? Who wouldn't be motivated? have a relative that has had it. So. Yeah. So everybody, you know, most people are sort of have some experience either through family or friend or colleague. And, you know, when we talk about prediabetes, if they're at risk, I, again, I've yet to meet someone who says, oh, that's really not that important to me. Of course, right. everybody's motivated. And it's interesting. And it's sort of a contrast to when I talk to patients about weight management. For some folks, it's not as important maybe to lose weight or, you know, but when we talk about in the context of diabetes prevention, it becomes a priority usually. Well, I can understand that because it's focusing on something that is a positive, you know, outcome that isn't necessarily... The values of how you right, look are different right. for different people. Cultures and, right, yeah. absolutely. But your health, everyone wants to be healthy, right? Everyone yeah. defines it differently. That's right. one of our seminal HCI values. You know, yeah. everyone wants to be healthy, but everyone My defines different, it right. differently. Yeah. But uh, So one thing that has struck me about this whole conversation about one out of two or pre-diabetic right. or diabetic, only one out of 10 know it that they, we've known since 2002 oh. a way to reduce your risk of developing diabetes mm-hmm. if you are pre-diabetic. Right. So tell me about that study that sure. has still, I mean, 2002. Right. 
They were almost two decades after. 17 years, yes. So, well, that study is commonly referred to as the Diabetes Prevention Program or DPP study was published again in that same New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the highest tier journals, and was conducted in 27 centers in the U.S. Um, Patients who had prediabetes and were overweight were randomized to receive an intensive lifestyle intervention, which we also now commonly refer to as the Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP, to metformin or to placebo, which was basically some informational flyers and quote-unquote usual care. And metformin is? Metformin is a, a anti-glycemic. It's a, a diabetes medication. The oldest one, right? Yeah, the oldest the and li- the safest. From the lilacs from yes. France. Yes, uh, <laughs> actually, lilac. yeah, it is. It's derived from... Um, right, the French uh, flowers. So it's, yeah, and it's one of the oldest, safest medications. And these days, actually, one of the cheapest. Um, it's it's pretty low cost. So, and low um, risk. And low risk. And so patients were randomized to these three arms and then followed over time. Three arms, meaning? The intensive lifestyle intervention, metformin, or uh, usual care. And what was the intensive lifestyle intervention? So the intensive lifestyle intervention in this study was one-on-one, face-to-face, weekly sessions over 16 weeks. And overall, these were conducted over 12 months' time. So they could be you know, bi-weekly, depending on the participants' needs. And there were some very specific goals, 150 minutes of moderate physical activity. So everybody was aiming to do a minimum of that. That was, they had, they could build up to it though. Yeah, they could. And and there was actually a run-in period of a couple of weeks before to get folks sort of starting to be active if they've never been So 150 minutes a week means 30 minutes a day for five days. Yes. And moderate means not, you know, you don't have to go run marathons. We're talking about brisk walking. So you kind of sort of can still carry on a conversation, but feeling a little bit sort of out of breath, um, but could still speak a full sentence. I wouldn't have to be all at the same time. Absolutely. Either. No, It'd be no. like 10 it's minutes, better. It's 10 actually minutes, better. Yes. Minutes. Yeah. And it's better for Isn't you. Isn't it also, isn't it better to exercise after you eat? So walk after you eat. Yeah, it's great in terms of the, you know, digestion. I think there's some data about sort of being able to digest food, but also after you eat is when your blood sugar levels tend to rise and activity helps reduce blood sugar levels. How does it do that? So activity, one, you're burning calories. I think that's a very sort of a straightforward way of thinking about it. So you're burning calories and you're burning kind of the food that you're taking in is one of the main ways. Yeah. So those muscles are working and they need glucose, right? They need to take up So they'll pull it out of the bloodstream. The bloodstream, exactly. So the insulin doesn't have to be doing it as well. Well, the insulin helps. So that's when glucose, yeah. So when glucose goes up, insulin goes up. And when you don't have diabetes, there's sort of a perfect match of the insulin and glucose. So all that extra sugar is taken up. When you have diabetes, that balance is off. So insulin may go up, but it's not being used appropriately and the sugar levels stay up. So 150 minutes of physical, moderate physical activity a week. And then in the original trial, it was 7% weight loss. So the goal, the actual amount of weight loss varied. At one year. At one year, yeah. Um, it varied depending on the person's starting weight, but it was to aim for 7%. And the third part of this intervention was really a reduction of calories to be able to meet that 7% weight loss goal. So actually they followed these participants for three years, but at the end of the study, they looked at, you know, weight loss in the first year, which was on average about 5%. On average. On average. Some people lost 10%, some some lost 1%. Yeah. And what they found in this study was that that amount of weight loss, we're talking about 5% in those first 12 months, was correlated with a 58% relative risk reduction for progression to type 2 diabetes as compared to the placebo arm. And the data we have on prediabetes that comes out of some studies that were done in China is over the lifetime, prediabetes represents about a 70% risk of progressing to type 2 diabetes. Hmm. So not every single person with prediabetes is going to get diabetes, but Mm -hmm. you know, the risk is, is lifetime risk is actually pretty high. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we talked about all these risk factors and 
So, you know, if someone's overweight and doesn't lose the weight, or if they are from certain racial ethnic groups, their risk might even be higher. Yeah. And so getting back to preventive medicine, which I think is really a unique characteristic of your work, because it is true as a specialist, even in this day and age, a lot of medical doctors are still not devoting the amount of time that they'd like to, or they even have the skills for. So why is it so important for long-term health for your patients or our community overall? What's driving you to focus on this? Yeah, I think for me personally, it really has been what I see in my everyday sort of clinical practice with respect to diabetes, sort of the negative impacts. And so at the same time, so you see all of these negative things that can happen and it's- And it's physical? Physical, it's emotional change of life. Yeah, absolutely emotional. And, you know, living with diabetes is not- you know, it's, it's something that folks can do very successfully, but it's a whole added bunch of things you have to do. Check your blood sugar. You know, I mean, there's a lot of other things that come with what that. Is, what, is, what comes um, with it besides so checking your blood checking sugar? checking your blood sugars, medications that you're taking. And in some instances, you know, usually we start with oral medications, but often might be insulin. And that's multiple daily injections that mm. someone's giving them. And so you can think about... We can think about the average working person and how much of a disruption something like this can be to their life. And so, you know, if we're in a position where we can, again, we can prevent or at the very least we can delay the onset by years, I think we're doing so much for, you know, so for quality of life, really, more than anything else. And, you know, in terms of our healthcare costs and from a societal perspective, prevention is key as most of our healthcare spending happens in a reactive fashion. People are hospitalized, you know, sort of there are these diagnoses and complications from the diagnoses. So in the U.S., one out of every seven healthcare dollars goes to diabetes-related care and complications. One out of every seven. Wow. What is our healthcare spending? Do you know? So in terms of diabetes-related healthcare spending, we get great estimates from the American Diabetes Association, which are published about every five years. In 2017, the ADA estimated that we spent... $327 billion on diabetes-related health care in the U.S. In comparison, in 2012, we had spent $245 billion. So in the span of just five years between 2012 and 2017, diabetes-related health care spending had increased by 26% in the U.S. So from an individual quality of life perspective, it's critical that we try to prevent diabetes, but also from a societal and sort of big picture, also really, really important that we prevent. Yeah. So what what are the makings of a successful diabetes prevention program? Sure. That's a great question. And I think we're fortunate that we are in a uh, sort of in a time that we have very clear guidelines about how to do diabetes prevention program delivery and how to do it well. And uh, we have national guidelines on what the makings of a successful program are. And all of that is informed from the trials, the randomized control trials and all the studies that have been done over the last two decades. So critical things are that the program is vetted by and sort of recognized by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. There's a national registry that's publicly available a website that you can go and look up programs by your city, by your state. So that's key. And and the reason that's key is all of the programs that are in that registry follow some very basic standards for delivery. Based on the research. Based on the research. And um, the coaches are certified. They're trained. The curriculum is And they don't have to be college educated. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But they have some training to do what they're doing. The curriculum is, you know, again, informed by the original research studies. And also, it's an intense program that's delivered over time. So we know the more sessions that are a part of the program, the better in terms of someone's ability to lose weight. So the programs are all at least a year long, 12 months, and at least 22 sessions in those 12 months. And some programs offer more. And when we talk about those numbers, it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to come to every session. Yeah. But the idea that 
you know, when you're making healthy lifestyle changes, it's not overnight. Right. You're doing it slowly and over time. And that if you do it in that way, you're more likely to succeed. Well, I remember you said the sweet spot's 10, right? 10. Yeah. So we know nine or, you know, sort of nine or 10 is Classes. sort of a critical, you know, dose. And again, the more sessions, every sort of study that's looked at this, the more sessions, the more, uh, you know, sort of the more, the more lasting and the more, um, the actual amount of weight loss tends to be higher. Yeah. And part of that is because more motivated, you know, individuals might be self-selecting, but that session attendance and the number of sessions is highly correlated with weight loss for sure. Yeah. And so tell me long-term outcomes. Like you're telling me one year, like how long have you, you know, and, and what's the sort of return on the investment, so to speak? Yeah, so the Diabetes Prevention Program study that was published in the New England Journal in 2002, you know, they've published their 10-year outcomes, their 15-year outcomes, and that cohort of patients is still being followed, so under sort of the auspices of NIH that sponsored the trial. And, you know, so what it looks like is that the protective sort of risk-lowering effects of intensive lifestyle intervention and also the metformin, which was one of the other arms of the study. And what was that reduced risk? Um, So in the first three years, it was 31% relative risk reduction. But that that protective effect or the risk-lowering effect of both the intensive lifestyle intervention and metformin are lasting to 15 years. So they decrease over time, but there, there's still a significant degree of risk reduction, even 15 years out, where a That's lot of incredible. folks have regained the weight wow. they lost in the original. You know, in the but original probably intensive. their diet must have stayed <clears throat> yeah. or their activity levels. So yeah, what we know from this study is that you know, again, even if you can do the intensive lifestyle intervention, or even with respect to the metformin, even if you did it for a period of time, it's somehow protective. Like it gave years. your pancreas yeah. a, a break or something. something. Yeah, <laughs> something. Again, the pathophysiology is it's yet to be clear. fully. Uh-huh. Um, that is the largest cohort of patients with prediabetes who've been followed over time in any you know any study conducted anywhere in the world. But there are also studies, um, large studies that have been conducted in China and Finland, and where patients have been followed over time and showing again sort of this protective benefit that lingers even after years after the trial. It's completed. Well, you know what? It makes me wonder, and it's something that I know you're going to be looking at in our groups that we are having here at UCLA, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering the sort of other secondary outcomes, not just related to the physiologic changes, but this social cohesion that might, or social connectivity that might be a result of these group classes, which were up to what only to 20 people in a right, class, right? right? So, so it's a, sort of a small group environment is how the DPP is delivered. And again, that's another aspect of a successful program to look for. You don't want to be in an auditorium with 100 people trying to sort of take a course. This is meant to be... Is that, are there some courses that are taught that way? I'm, sh- I'm sure there are. They won't be CDC recognized, oh, but there are. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean... The day and age we live, if you go onto Google and say, you know, diabetes, there's a whole series of things that might come uh, up. And uh-huh. and not that sessions like that aren't helpful and right. for you to get more information and, um, you know, sort of an overview. I'm a, I'm a big supporter of the more sort of information is, yeah. is, is a good thing. But in terms of the diabetes prevention program, you know, we have some really kind of very clear guidelines on how to do that program and do it well based on the research. So that's important to, to sort of keep in mind. And in small groups, so we're talking about 20 or fewer participants. And there's a coach who shares information from the curriculum, but folks are coming together. And they're supposed to share their shared, you know, challenges and also Solutions. their success. Yeah, yeah. their success. And, you know, there isn't a lot of data that we've seen in terms of when you bring people together around this topic of prediabetes, we know there's group cohesion over time, right? So you're meeting with the same people and the same coach. And you would think that that hopefully is a motivating force for individuals. And in studies we've done in the VA, participants talk about- VA, the Veterans Veterans Association. Yeah. So talk about accountability. So I know when I'm going to my group- You know, I am accountable to myself for these promises to live a healthier life and be more physically active. But when I'm, you know, I'm also accountable to my group members and that's form of another form of sort of social support. So, yeah, we're really excited to look at these things and and, uh, see if, 
you know, we know quality of life improves with the DPP and intensive lifestyle intervention. That's been shown. But it could be because of social support, mm-hmm. you know, to get And what is, uh, how do you measure quality of life? So there are different survey instruments that can be used in, in studies. And the original, again, the original cohort of patients who was in that DPP study from the New England Journal is still being followed, as I've mentioned. And they've had standardized assessments, uh, measurements of how they rate their own quality of life. And with the folks who are in the intensive lifestyle intervention, they are rating higher quality of life. Again, whether or not they were able to lose weight, whether or not they were able to stick with the intervention, their quality of life over time seemed higher. We didn't see that change with the metformin arm or with the usual care arm. Well, that's very interesting. And it will be interesting. I Hopefully, you'll have some data for social well-being yeah, since we know that's great. a big predictor of health and longevity. Yeah, in uh, other studies around just aging Americans. You you mentioned your work at the Veterans Association, and, and you mentioned earlier about the diabetes prevention seems to be more motivating than weight loss. Mm-hmm. Your studies that you've published, too, have shown that that kind of data yeah. or observation has played out. Yeah, so I spend, you know, part of my time in the VA and Actually, some of my initial interests around diabetes prevention are based on work I did really many years ago with veterans. And part of the issue um, or the challenge with veterans is the rates of obesity are even higher than the general population. And the VA has always had what we would call a standard of care weight loss program known as the MOVE program. And that's delivered actually at 150 VA medical centers everywhere. But it's sort of delivered in different ways based on the site. So we were really interested, uh, year, uh, you know, now this is going back to 2012, to do a comparative effectiveness trial to compare DPP which is a much more intense the diabetes prevention program. the diabetes prevention program, which is a much more intense, meaning more number of sessions, and um, you know certified coaches, same group, that group accountability kind of cohesion we were talking about to compare outcomes and patient experiences with the DPP as compared to move. The, the, the Which doesn't existence. have the same, like you don't have to go to the same group. Right. It's sort of a come as you, you know, your schedule allows in. and your goals are not, you know, the same. I might want to just be more physically active. You might want to just eat healthier. Whereas the diabetes prevention program has standardized goals. So everybody in the group is working towards the same goals. So we did this study. Initially, we started with just the in per, an in-person version of the DPP, which the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is the way it's tra- you know sort of traditionally delivered in person compared to MOVE. And we saw that around six months, there tends to be more weight loss with the DPP as compared to MOVE. But Even though MOVE was a weight loss program. It is, and it is. And yeah. so this is a really active comparator. This isn't, we're not comparing patients yeah. to usual care. And by 12 months, though, the weight loss seemed similar between the two groups, or it was approaching uh, the same. And part of that is regain. So what happens mm. is the program went from being very intensive to less intensive. The diabetes, the prevention. diabetes prevention program. But patient satisfaction was much higher with the DPP. Participation tended to be higher. So folks were com- veterans were coming more. They were more likely to come to a DPP session than they were to a move session. And as we were, as the study started getting underway, we actually decided because at the time there was a lot of interest in technology and and how we can deliver DPP differently. We actually added on an online or virtual group form of the DPP and. Those results were really kind of interesting because now then we were doing a three-way comparison and it seemed like online and in-person DPP, um, when you combine those, you know, they're very similar in terms of the amount of weight loss that they resulted in. We're talking about around four kilograms and, and the move participants were kind of hovering around the same weight over the 12 months. They didn't gain weight, but they didn't lose weight. Right, right. And so, you know, it was really interesting to see that, you know, you could deliver a traditional face-to-face program, maybe using a platform, a web-based platform that might provide some convenience and flexibility. So it's another option that might be available and and acceptable to some people. So the, the social learning aspect, was that maintained in the online like there were forums where so we the had, yeah. groups could 
and online DPP is delivered in different ways and by different vendors. There's a lot of them out there. And again, I would encourage our listeners to reference the CDC lists because they tend to vet the programs. And, so just and, go to cdc.gov and yeah, then go a to re- diabetes, search for diabetes, diabetes prevention and then, program. And you can see a registry. But yeah, usually the, the way online DPP programs are delivered is asynchronously, which means I can log in at 2 a.m. and you can log in at 12 a.m. You know, mm. or 1 p.m. It's not a it's not a, not group, a group time. Oh, it's not okay. like a Skype, you know, or a WebEx uh, or something. Uh-huh. Um, there are programs that do it that way, but most are providing some educational materials, and it might be through videos or other sort of interactive means. But I can. Um, sort of go through those materials at a time that works for me. And then I have sort of access to what's happening with other people in my same group. So I log in and think, imagine kind of a Facebook group. Uh And so I can see their pictures. They can see my pictures. They can see how I'm doing in terms of my goals and they, and I see how they're doing. We have a coach. We can send each other messages. We can post to the group site Uh and we all have wireless scales. So we're weighing ourselves instead of driving in for an appointment, you're kind of doing that conveniently at home. So that's a sort of a more multifaceted kind of way of thinking uh-huh. about online DPP. So you could still get support, but in a non like live situation, yeah, like, you know, or ideas from other people. Because that's what absolutely. I find that social learning is so useful for people to say, hey, you know, I couldn't fit in. And that's what we saw. We, we, we actually did a study where we looked among women veterans who tend to be more reluctant to participate in any of the in-person weight loss programs in the VA. I think the number was an uh, average of 70 posts, you know, over the first couple weeks of the program. So takes effort you know you got to be thinking so so it was very interactive and we did interviews with these participants and I was really surprised to find out that they still felt accountable to Mm. their group and they felt like they were part of a group Mm. you know this wasn't you know sort of a random set of people that they you know had no interest in getting to know and some of them actually even formed if they lived close together were interested in forming walking groups oh wow so again there is that social component. And the coach, any successful online program should have a live coach. You know, there should be someone that you can talk to by phone or would even call you if you haven't logged in in a week to say, hey, is everything okay? And that's a real important piece of a successful. We had that and any program that you're, you know, someone's looking to sign up for should have that. And so if you were to say a 40-year-old you're a specialist, so you wouldn't see a 40-year-old that was just coming in for a checkup. But just right. say you're like supervising right. an internal yeah. medicine resident in clinic, and there was a 40-year-old coming in who looked like they had a healthy weight and no family history right. of diabetes. What would you do? So uh, you for know, a checkup. Yeah, for a checkup. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've done general primary care. There are other age, you know, appropriate screenings that yeah, need to be done. Yeah, but related to diabetes. But I think I would talk with them. I would, as, you know, if if they were of normal, even if they were their weight was normal, I would talk about the importance of avoiding weight gain because, as we talked about, as you get older, your risk of potentially gaining weight goes up. And I would also ask a lot of questions about the other potential risk factors. So in someone who's 40, I would ask about if they're a woman, you know, how much weight they gained during pregnancy. If the baby was over nine pounds, that's a risk factor for diabetes and really try to make sure that we, you know, aren't missing any even other risk factor. Do, even though they had a normal glucose tolerance test? Yeah. yeah. So baby over nine pounds at delivery is a risk factor for future for future diabetes development. So some women have a known diagnosis of gestational diabetes where it happens, yeah. you know, the glucose isn't normal during pregnancy, but on a baby that's large for the age or the the mean is also a risk factor. Mm, so, yeah. Even though they pass their glucose tolerance right. test. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's not a perfect science, is not it? Not a perfect science. And that's why there's um, there's great screeners and that might be something else I would do or encourage our residents to do share that information with patients. There's nine questions and there are different versions of this um, screening, but it literally takes 30 seconds. And the questions are about your age, your physical activity, your family history. You know, if you're a woman, whether or not you had gestational diabetes, a baby over nine pounds, 
and it can give you a risk score. Without and having a blood test. Without having a blood test. And if your risk score is elevated, the data, the research, and the national guidelines would say you should be thinking about making being some. Being checked. Yeah, being checked and, and participating potentially in a DPP right. program. So if you were to say maybe you just want to prevent or you want to institute healthy lifestyle and you are less than 40 and you're not at, in any of the risk categories, what would you First of all, I think that the diabetes prevention program, I've heard people really anecdotally talk about how it changed their life in terms of just socializing right. with their family and feeling better and being able to hike and all this stuff. So I always like to sort of, I'm sure you do too, like yeah. gear people towards the positive and right. not like, oh, you're, you have to give up this or that. But right. what do you, what's your sort of standard kind of coaching that you'd like to see people do in their in their day-to-day life like what would you recommend so i i I mean i think simple things simple i think simple and small steps are really important so obviously i'm a huge proponent of the diabetes prevention program but that's a big commitment and it's hard you know sort of to for some folks maybe to commit to doing the program but there are little things you can do and goal setting and thinking about you know one thing you can change i think is something that's reasonable, it's feasible, it's something you can do. You know, there are all these fad diets and you go on these sort of crazy (laughs) calorie restriction. But if it's not something you can maintain, chances are you're going to do the sort of the yo-yo, you know, the up and the down um, weight cycles that we try to avoid. What happens if you are healthy weight already? Like, yeah. So like if you are a 20-year-old, yeah, like what would you say, not to give up or change, but what do you yeah. think should be, where well, should people go? What yeah. direction? So one thing I actually do talk to patients and, and actually just, you know, friends and colleagues about is self, this concept of self-monitoring. So I think, especially with diet, we often aren't thinking about what we're eating and what we're kind of not just calories, but the sort of the nutritional component. I think someone who's healthy probably is doing that, you know, a healthy weight is maybe doing that and obviously is lucky in terms of the metabolic rate and things like that. But I would encourage them, you know, to do a food diary and you can do it with a good old journal and pen, but there are all these really neat apps and kind of things that are um, available. And to really take a look at the foods they're eating and both in terms of calories, but the nutritional component. And and even if you're of a healthy weight, there's always things that you might be able to improve in terms of your health. And then, of course, physical activity is huge. Um, and, and, and walking, just plain Just walking, walking right? right? Park a little farther or, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's something, again, that we could all do more of. And it's, it's not easy. It's hard to do, but um, something for folks to think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for like the foods that you would suggest are good foods, period, but also good if you are pre-diabetic. I know fiber, high fibrous foods. Yeah, and we we are, you know, learning more and more about the dietary, the ideal dietary makeup for someone with pre-diabetes. It's sort of, relatively speaking, still a newer, you know, sort of a newer concept in the last decade or two. I think fiber and sort of complex grains are really important. We also are hearing more and more about the Mediterranean diet. So nuts and, you know, sort of the olive oil and fish and kind of staying away from heavy sort of meat, you know, kind of products, I think might be something else to think about. But the idea is to eat a balanced diet. I think... Non-processed? Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, to try to avoid processed foods and um, And sugar really sneaks into all foods even mayonnaise has sugar and that's why i like these apps a lot i mean the one i've personally used is my fitness pal but there's a million out there but Mm. it actually gives you once you put in sort of the food item it shows you every not just calories but how much salt how much sugar you know and And that's much more important to me as an i mean i think carbohydrate content is much more important than the calories. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really, it's amazing. And, you know, again, physical activity is so important, but, you know, I tell my patients when I see them in clinic, I, you know, I can be on the treadmill for like an hour and I burn maybe 400 calories in a minute. I can, you know, you can consume something and you're just not even sort of thinking about it. You're just, 
So self-monitoring, you know, someone who's a healthy weight and kind of has made lots of good decisions so far, I think that might be something they could do to see, gosh, you know, yeah. what am I eating? What's, yeah, what's that is, on? that's been proven in both, in both just healthy maintenance, maintenance. but also weight loss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so from your perspective as an endocrinologist, what what's the number of grams of sugar that you would recommend a pre-diabetic in percent of their caloric intake? Oh, that's a tough there- question. Yeah, I don't know that we have a uh, prescription. Yeah, a prescription for something like that. You know, for our patients with diabetes, there's been a lot, you know, sort of more studies. And I think if we follow the general guidelines for diabetes, are about 60 grams of carbohydrates per meal, not more than that. Oh, per meal. Um, per meal. Three which meals is, a day. Yeah, three meals. But that's still, I mean, if you think, you know, a slice of bread is about 15 grams. So if you had a sandwich, yeah. that's half, and then you might have an apple, which is another 30 grams. So that's generally the recommendations for someone with diabetes. For prediabetes, we don't have clear set guidelines like that, but that might be a sort of a framework to uh-huh. think about. So would you recommend for like a pre-diabetic, well, obviously diabetics do, but to actually just count in terms of self-monitoring, monitor their carbohydrate intake? Yeah, so carbohydrate intake. And I would also, uh, you know, want them to, again, it's not just about the calories and the carbohydrates, but making sure they're getting balanced intake from sort of a nutritional perspective Uh too. So if we think about, you know, the My Healthy Plate, you know, the idea is half is coming from salads and green, you know, vegetables and things. And so to be thinking along those lines of eating balanced meals um, is really important. And of course, avoiding high sugar drinks and And, kind of any sugared sweetened beverage, you know, eliminating that altogether, which includes sugared sodas. Right. And also what about um, the sodas that are or the artificially artificial flavors? Or artificial sugar. Yeah. So this is where I think the, you know, I don't want to say the jury's still out, but we have, and I'm, you know, not a basic scientist, but there are basic science studies that have been done, you know, using animal models, uh, showing that animals that are taking in high levels of these artificial sweeteners are more likely to be at risk for diabetes and, and weight gain. And what's the pathophysiology behind that? So that, you know, it's it's not one that I'm familiar with, but, you know, in my own sort of thinking about this, I've thought about, it's like your body, your, you taste sweet, but the sugar isn't the sugar that your body's expecting. So maybe there's some kind of hormonal dysregulation and that might be happening, but we don't have human studies. We haven't, we don't have large trials that have been done, you know, in adults or obviously not um, kids that have looked at this. So the data about whether it's good or not really comes from animal studies. And it's hard to extrapolate that to, to humans, but there is some indication that, you know, maybe it's not a healthier choice always. Yeah. Right. And do you know anything about, I know there's um, herbs that are moderating, that are considered moderating, yeah. like cinnamon or... Cinnamon and um, actually turmeric mm-hmm. is another one. Sage. Again, not Yeah, not my area of expertise, but, you know, I do get patients who ask about this. And I'm always of the thinking that, you know, to try. A lot of these things are sometimes kind of advertised as supplements. And so it gets into this sort of gray area. But I think, again, thinking about what we're consuming and why is an important thing for all of us to be doing. Right. And you certainly, they... They, those particular herbs make things taste better. Yeah. So that's tum- important. <laughs> right. So cinnamon's a favorite. And turmeric we use a lot in, I mean, in Middle Eastern foods. It's, uh-huh. you know, it's so, you know, I think, yeah, try it and, you know, see, you know, see how it works. It's and, good for yeah. your gut health yeah. as far as right. uh, the data that's out there. So, well, to wrap up, I want to leave our listeners with some resources to go to they're seeking to improve their health and live a healthier lifestyle. Do you mind sharing some resources both nationally and within California and even here at uh, UCLA? Sure, sure. So I'll start, I mean, nationally, I think there's a lot of really incredible information on the CDC websites. And those, again, you can just go Centers for Disease Control and type in N-diabetes or pre-diabetes on Google 
and you there's really helpful information about what diabetes is and what prediabetes is and you know even some questions about pathophysiology but really national statistics what the trends look like and then the CDC also has is that we had mentioned this national registry of DPP programs that are certified so that would be one of the main sites I would send folks to to get more information about the clinical side, but also some potential resources. And and if you wanted to start a program on your campus, yes. your university campus, you could also get information from them about yeah. that. Yeah, the standards for delivery, so the metrics that they expect if you're going to deliver a program and that process, absolutely. And I think the American Medical Association also has a prediabetes stat which stands for a screen test act today site. And that also is, has patient facing materials. It has provider facing materials that are helpful for thinking about how to screen, who to screen, you know, it's geared at both providers and healthcare organizations. So that's a great resource. And locally. So obviously we have our, we're so proud to have our local campus UCLA based Diabetes Prevention Program, which is open. Yeah, one of the first campuses, yeah, which we're really proud of, and it's offered through Campus Recreation. And in addition to the Diabetes Prevention Program, our campus offers other classes and group-based weight management programs and things that uh, folks would probably be interested to learn about. And that program is now, our UCLA DPP program is now a model for the other UC campuses. So if someone's listening and they're on another UC campus, uh, there should be a DPP even closer to home that they can um, reach out to. So yeah, re- lots students of resources. Students and staff are th- able Everyone to use that is, for free. Yeah. And here at UCLA, students as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a program um, that would normally cost around six seven, maybe, you know, $100, but is offered free for faculty and staff and students on the campus. Oh, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. And it might, you know, so hopefully more people learn about it. We do have wait lists. I mean, it's, it's really, we're again, very excited about the program. And oh, we, we have wait lists now? Yeah, we have wait oh lists. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, um, and we don't want to turn anyone away, but, you know, we are, are trying to accommodate. We want to keep it at demand. 20 the smaller 20, uh, group, yeah, because you, you'll get more out of the program yeah. in a smaller group. So, yeah, we're really excited about our campus leading the charge here. Well, so um, we'll end this uh, with some questions. If I haven't covered anything, but also I'd love to know, like, what's your home kitchen look like? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now we're in temporary housing, but my home my home kitchen is uh, is. It's relatively small, so um, but it, it often includes the kids and I cooking together. We sort of tend to do that as a and family. And how old are your kiddos? So I have a six and an eight-year-old. So they're kind of stove safe at this point. Uh-huh. They used to <laughs> want to help, and, you know, I was... But um, we tend to do, you know, again, we're really trying to do balanced meals at home, but, you know, that can be challenging sometimes after school and it's a rush and, and things. But one thing How I try to overcome that. Challenge? Yeah. So some days are better than others, yeah. but, you know, even if it means, you know, we're rushed, even if it means sort of taking some vegetables and doing a steam quickly and sort of having them, you know, on the side there, really trying to we're trying, and I, I have help at home, so that really does um, makes it yeah. makes it easier. But the other thing I'm trying to do is, and this is a personal thing, is less frozen stuff. We tend to like freeze everything, and I know in Europe the frigid the refrigerators are smaller, and you're trying to you know sort of eat fresher. But that's also challenging, so it's something yeah. we're working on. Well, frozen vegetables are considered to be Absolutely almost even nutrition. more nutritious. Yeah, and I have a yeah. whole stockpile of them for sure. But yeah, trying to think about all of us can, you know, but no juice. There's you won't find any right. juice so in my house. So make the healthy choice the, the easy, easy choice, choice, right? And, and we, the less healthy choice, the not so easy. Yeah, choice. you won't really find. And it's the way I I sort of grew up too. Is uh, you know I don't remember soda. I don't remember chip. You know all in of your those household in my household. Yeah. And you don't make them forbidden foods, but they're just yeah. So if they go out and, and they, you know, but they're at someone else's house, yeah. it's not like oh they can't do that. Yeah, and it's not like we're not. You know, I mean we. 
we definitely have our, you know, we will eat out. We have our days where things aren't as, as ideal as I'd like them to be. But, you know, I think one thing is this hunger cue yes. thing. And that's something uh, culturally for us and for my family, it's always about like, finish your plate. You didn't eat and you know, so that's something we're really trying to work on at home so that when you feel full, it's okay to be excused, you know, excuse right. me. you don't have to keep eating for the sake of eating. So that is something we're trying to work on with the with the grandparents, especially. <laughs> yeah, that's always the, the hitch in right. certain circumstances. Yeah. There's no yeah. question. Was there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to share? No, just thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for your leadership on the campus. It's it's. I don't think any of this what we've accomplished with the UCLA DPP program and a lot of other really exciting things that are happening on campus would have been possible without you, Wendy. Thanks to Naz. Well, stay tuned. We're going to do more. More. (laughs) Onwards and upwards. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for your valuable time. Thanks so much. On all of this work that you do. Thank you so much for tuning in to Live Well. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Seminole Healthy Campus Initiative Center. During these extraordinary times of the COVID-19 pandemic, UCLA's Diabetes Prevention Program has transitioned online and demonstrated that it is possible to create a strong sense of community virtually. Many participants have shared that this program has enhanced their current life in providing a strong social support network. We're learning how to stay connected during this new normal and invite you to learn more about how you can become involved in the Diabetes Prevention Program. For more information on Dr. Tanaz Moyne and the DPP, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts.